This programme was recorded before Tim Farron announced his resignation as leader of the Liberal Democrats. Hello, fellow saboteurs, traitors and enemies of the people. Welcome to another edition of Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast that comes together in the national interest. My name's Dorian Linsky and we've got a full house of regulars for this week's show. With us we have Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, who has finally recovered from the election. Marginally so. No, I mean, I'm getting there. My emotional emotional stasis is is starting to redevelop once more. I quite thought I thought you were quite good. I thought you had a good sort of insomniac buzz on last time. Okay, so yeah. actually that's true. But yeah. then as soon as I got on a tube and wasn't writing or speaking, I basically just crashed completely instantly. So the whole thing was just had to keep on doing something active. That was the only thing that sort of kept me going. Looking forward to another election, maybe? <laughs> Not so much, actually. <laughs> if they could just hold off on that one for a while, that would be ideal. And returning to the show from his week off, it's former economist business editor turned keen Brexitologist Peter Collins. Well, I should How say you, keen amateur Brexitologist because I'm not an expert, just in case Michael Gove's tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. What, what an election, eh? <laughs> How was your election night? Well, I made it till 4am, I have to admit. I was going to stay up all night because, um, you know, I, I hoped it would be entertaining. But by 4am, we'd seen, was it Jane Ellison lost Battersea around 2am? Mm-hmm. So I, mi- I missed Ben Gummer. Obviously, that was came a bit later, losing his seat. But I just, I couldn't keep it up any longer <laughs> to uh, add in another... How um, could you party. go to see? It was just the most gorgeous, satis- like emotionally satisfying TV I'd seen in years. I just couldn't take my eyes off it. It was, you know, the, the ending of Apocalypse Now. TV watching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you just heard her there. This week we have a special guest with us. She's a comedian. She grew up in the Philippines and India. She studied public policy at Oxford and the University of Chicago. And she used to be a banker too, so we're looking forward to the funny side of the loss of EU banking directives and passporting. Her show, Iguana Mum, is on in Edinburgh throughout August. It's Cindy V. Hello, Cindy. Welcome to Romaniacs. I'm so pleased to be here, uh, mainly because your title has, you know, has part of the word maniac in it. And uh, that's so, that would that's how my family thinks of me. I've got three kids and a husband, and they're like maniac. Yeah, you should go on. <laughs> so I searched I'm, maniacs on Twitter looking for responses to the show, and then I forgot that it was an insult, and that there were just loads of like really angry people using the word. I thought we've already reclaimed it, and like I think a couple of good insults shows you're doing something right. And it's just a cool-sounding insult. Yeah, Romaniac. Yeah, you Romaniac. I'm like, yeah, I'll take that all day long. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we've had a fantastic response, in fact, to our first few shows, especially the Red Eye Election Special. We made it to the top five of the iTunes podcast charts, and we sent a very nice response from listeners. So, yeah, and then this is the bit. I mean, why do I always end up having to read people's names? Because I can't say the names. It's absolutely kind of... So, uh, An- Annalise Jesperson, Annalise... Annalise, Annie, Annalise, if I've said your name wrong, then I apologise full-heartedly and please ring in and tell us. She said, I really enjoyed this, thanks, definitely made the ironing go quicker. And Totoro on Twitter says, I really enjoyed this, living in a mixed household, RE Brexit is a fucking nightmare. My cortisol levels, thank you. Toby Barrett on Twitter says, enjoyed the Romaniac selection special immensely. I'm still remoaning to all my family and friends and this gives me a bit of hope. But amid the chunk of five-star reviews we got on the iTunes Music Store, we had a one-star review from someone called Nostias, who said we were trash and drivel. Well, oh. we may be trash, but we're glamorous divine trash, as John Waters would have said. <laughs> <laughs> Cindy, you've been doing your actual proper laugh-out-loud comedy around Brexit, and you played a comedy gala on the night that Article 50 was triggered. That I did. I did, thanks to Ian. Oh, yes. Oh, that was That's me, wasn't right. it? Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was um, I mean, to be honest, I'm not a very political comic at all, but 
the fact is, my husband is Danish. He didn't bother getting a UK passport. I, of course, got one as soon as I could because, well, I mean, for those who can't see me, I'm Indian. And I just said, be safer. Get a UK passport, you know, get any potential trouble out of the way. And I was right. But he didn't. And then we had an argument and I couldn't resist. So I told him, I said, you know, dude, why don't you please fuck off back where you came from? (laughs) And that just became such a great joke around Brexit because I was like, I'll just open with that. And to be honest, when I get on stage and say there's a little bit about Brexit I like, no one knows what I'm about to say. And then I say this, and I have to say every married person in the room is like, yep, well done. Yep, yep. <laughs> because you say it when you're married, you'll do anything to have the last word, really. I read somewhere that uh, the Danes are especially annoyed at us over the Brexit vote, even more than everybody else, because they sort of joined the European Union along with Britain mm. and have, mm. have you know, a very similar view of a sort of you know, free marketish, mm. limited federalism, uh, not too much uh, closer union and so on. Is that true? Does your husband fulminate against us? Um, yeah, my husband absolutely could not understand what the thinking was behind that. Um, well, Nor can we, by the way. Go no, on. no, no. But I mean, as in he understood that Cameron had to call it, which in itself to me was like, oh, please don't. But he did. He had to call it. I guess it was... It was his, uh, what is it called, Faustian Pact. Mm. This is how they got that majority in the first place. He did it, and then, you know, it went uh, totally in their face. Having said that, the Danes have on several issues said no again and again in the, you know, on referendums they've had around Europe, I mean, for different issues. So I don't think they can complain that much. I think, like every European, they didn't think you'd just leave. You know, it was like, what? Like, make some fuss. And, you know, you know how, like, when you are having an argument with your spouse, like, I'm going to go. And they're like, oh, no, come back. This was like, I'm going to go. I'm gone. I sat in the taxi. I've left. You're like, what? I think that's and I I mean, I think the Danes feel that as well. We'll uh, talk a bit more about Brexit and comedy later. Plus, we'll choose our favorites from the hated EU regulations that we're all going to be freed from soon. But first, the election that was supposed to settle everything is still rumbling on. Are we going hard, soft, delayed, open? Nice, nasty, or no Brexit at all? And will we have a functioning government? Ian, one major development is after we were threatened with EU exit talks that would start 10 days after the election, for definite, it turns out they might be delayed for a year. I don't even... It's it's funny, I was sort of thinking, what's changed? And actually, in a way, nothing has really changed since last week. We're in exactly the same spot that we're in, of just total confusion, and no one really knows what is going on. We can start now, I think, to do these early stages of disentangling the various sort of tribes within the parties and actually within government departments as well. The Prime Minister's spokesman was refusing to deny, that they, you know, well, refusing to deny basically anything on Monday on any subject at all. However, on the Queen's speech and on the start of the Brexit talks, they couldn't say that that was definitely going to happen. They couldn't say that it was definitely not going to happen. But simply on the basis of reason, how on earth are any of these talks going to be going ahead? I mean, the rest of the department itself is seemingly being gutted and replaced. So David Jones, who's a junior minister there, he's out. We've got Joyce Anlay, he's in. He's a Remainer. Interestingly enough, he's a Remainer. George Bridges, who's also a minister in the department, he's out. He was in charge of sort of forcing through the law, probably around the Great Repeal Bill and various other bits of legislation in the department. He seems to have gone as well. He seems to have fallen out with Downing Street because they weren't consulting him on anything. <laughs> you know, surprise, surprise. <laughs> who would have thought? Then look at what's happening around David Davis. This is really interesting. So David Davis's special advisor, James Chapman, he's quit. Stuart Jackson, who's his parliamentary private secretary, he lost his seat. So suddenly you're just seeing this gutting out of, of the department. Who is it that they are intending on sending to those talks on Monday? So, I mean, for us to say it's going to be delayed, it seems completely necessary to delay it on the basis of simple function rather than even the, the confusion we have around what we're trying to achieve when we get there. 
Did you see, by the way, that they're also advertising for spin doctors for the Department for Brexit? <laughs> oh uh, saying what a fabulous, exciting opportunity. It's not often that an opportunity of this scale comes along. Third polisher required. Well, I was just going to suggest, why don't we all apply, um, pretend to be ardent, you know, hard Brexiteers, and then at the first press conference actually say, actually, this was a very silly idea. We didn't want the referendum. We shouldn't be leaving. And we're now not going to leave and then run away. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I think it sounds a lot like what might actually happen, given they have no one there. Whoever does come might say something and then run away and leave. That part, I think, might just stick. It, do, it does seem that there's people... Well, we don't know why people are, are, are leaving, but, you know, there's an element of what happened with Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet that people think, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. I don't want to serve. I, I would rather go and hide and let somebody else take the flag. And have its own Sean Spicer uh-huh. getting up to... Uh... Explain the unexplainable. That's a great idea. We did warn that this was going to happen. I mean, for 12 months, you know, and now it's happening. So it's not as if they weren't told that this was a possibility. We now have, I mean, look, David Davis comes out on the Monday and he basically says, we're going to stick to our previous Brexit plan. Then by the time he gets to the afternoon, he's sort of saying, oh, well, you know, my door's always open. He's on Sky at midday. He's like, oh, my door's always open for Keir Starmer if Labour wants to come have a chat with me. We get Michael Gove the next morning, magically risen from the political grave, who's then brought in and suddenly says, well, actually, no, we're sticking to the plan. But, well, potentially we could take some ideas from other parts. And that's the, the opening overtures towards t- saying to Labour, perhaps we could work together. And that suggests already that even the guys in the department realise that they don't know what it is that they want from these negotiations. They've pretty much given up on a no-deal outcome. They don't seem to have really given up on hard Brexit, i.e. on leaving the single market and the customs union. And they're increasingly appealing to the stuff that John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn are saying, also on the hard Brexit stuff. But what's fascinating to me is, is that they quite plainly, quite evidently, have no idea even what they are trying to achieve in the talks. Over and over again, this is warned about. And now here we are facing the business end of the negotiations, actually having to go sit down. And we have got no one to go sit down there and they have no idea what they're doing. Just how much more humiliation of this country are they going to impose on us in the international stage before they've decided that they've been playing enough games? What do we think about this sort of cross-party idea? Because Yvette Cooper's up for it, Cameron's up for it, Ken Clark, bless him, is up for it. It sounds like the precursor to an idea that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of wonder, like, leave aside the, I've, I've heard the party political argument that perhaps Labour just doesn't want to have anything to do with this because it's kind of doomed to failure. But in the national interest, would this be, would this be an improvement if we had a, a more sort of conciliatory cross-party team? And I have a kind of joint question on that. Is that when they say, well, if it's not hard Brexit, soft Brexit, what is that? What exactly would that be? You're really playing with fire here because I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> it would make me happy and no one else in the world. No, no, so. make it make a, like a, let's do like a like a succinct one because I always think it's very it's I mean it's very good to say well we can't have hard Brexit maybe we'll have soft Brexit and well, no one is really spelling out what soft Brexit looks like. Well, we can like. stay in the customs union. Okay. We can even stay uh, if not stay in the single market have very good access to the single market. We could do some kind of a compromise on the rights of citizens, Brit- you know, British citizens in the EU and EU citizens that, that, is, that is good and keeps the country relatively open. There's all sorts of things we could do, but it's whether they're, they're going to happen. But the thing is, isn't the big falling down point going to be free movement of peoples, that immigration yeah. thing? Because then if the Tories say, well, we don't have to do that either, then you don't have Brexit. Then let's just go back to the real thing. Yeah, exactly. But it, it might be worth Do you know us, what I mean? Could we have like a quick chat about what the single market and the customs union is? Because that doesn't really get talked about very often. I don't know whether it's worth us just taking two or three minutes to quickly sort Off of outline it. Like, your customs union is, is this is all massive 
massively simplified, but basically it's just goods crossing over borders, pay tariffs, and in order to assess those tariffs, you need to do country of origin checks, which are very, very laborious, bureaucratic requirements. The main thing that businesses fear, they obviously fear the tariffs. I mean, tariffs are not good, especially in agriculture and manufacturing. Lots of products cross multiple sort of uh, country borders as they as they are made. But ultimately, a lot of them, you can swallow the cost. Like, say you're BMW, and they chuck another 10% on the price of a car. You don't really have price-conscious consumers for BMWs. You know, if you're buying a BMW, you're kind of all right for money, and so you could probably handle another sort of 7 10%. What they really care about is those country-of-origin checks. Profoundly laborious, takes an awfully long time. You've got all these British firms who've never paid it. That's very, very problematic. The trouble is, the temptation would therefore be to stay in the customs union, but if you stay in the customs union, you can't negotiate your own trade deals. And politically, I think that's very, very difficult, because for the Conservatives... They need to show this great big sunny uplands at the end of the process. They need to show, well, look, there's a good side to all of this. It's not just mm. pointless drudgery for years. So that always seems like it's sort of an area they wouldn't want to go to. The single market is basically just setting a core level of standards on goods and services you'd have to show. So let's say the chemical composition of a child's toy or you know, the, the electrical way that uh, something is set up in a car to make sure it doesn't interfere with... Um, the stuff pacemaker. people get in the pacemaker. Yeah, thank you very much. Or um, the surveillance of, uh, of uh, financial authorities or something like that. You basically make sure that everything's set to the same standard. You don't need to check it so it can cross over borders as much as it likes. Mostly the single market is for services. We're a services economy. And mostly the customs union is, is for goods. Although there's, there's, that's more complicated than that. But basically that's the way it goes. We can choose to stay in any one of these things that we want. And we would still be leaving the EU. We would still be pulling out of anything on justice and home affairs. We'd still be pulling out of anything on foreign policy or defense. We'd still be putting out of anything on agriculture and fisheries. And most importantly, we'd be pursuing a moderate interpretation of the vote, which seems to correspond to a split electorate and to two countries in the UK not supporting it. However... It is politically unpalatable for exactly the reason you pointed out, which is freedom of movement, which actually has done great things for this country, but we've all now decided is the most appalling thing because plumbers exist and it must be stopped. Well, I think that the vote, a lot of, not all, anyone who's listening to this and tweets me and says, well, not all of us, no, <laughs> a lot of the Leave vote, and I won't say to a Leave vote, voted because they don't want immigration. And for the Leave group to now say, well, that's kind of, that's not negotiable from a political will within this country. But the other thing is, I think if you take the soft options, and why will the EU agree to that? They're just opening themselves up to a world of pain. And I get it that they need the UK. But I don't think the EU is going to give up the freedom of movement things. You know, because it, the Danes have a number of opt-out clauses. They really do. But they don't have one on freedom of movement. So it was in the EEA, it's, you know, the, the guys who are not in the EU but are in the single market, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is basically you take someone like Norway or to a lesser degree Switzerland, which does yeah, it in yeah. this convoluted, very in their Swiss own way. way. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Those guys actually aren't really in the EU. So no one can really stop us there. The people that could stop us going in there is someone like Norway. Norway is actually a bit suspicious of us dropping in the EEA because they have a nice leadership role in a small yep. group of countries. And they're like, well, look, here comes Britain that's going to massively outplay us. The thing is, they actually rather like us, the Norwegians, and they're actually have sort of said, look, we're not comfortable with this, but we wouldn't veto it. So we that option is there for us if we want to take it pretty much. There's not really much stopping us there. Question is, is there enough of a sort of understanding of the sacrifices that we're making back home that we might actually go and opt for it? One of my favourite uh, things recently was, was seeing TV personality Nigel Farage on, on, <laughs> on Fox News. Uh, rather dismayed and going, I thought we got up to the top of Brexit Hill. And now we appear to be halfway down again. And, of course, there is that thing of because the mandate is this very sort of 
malleable thing is that, of course, to him, it is the hard. It was a mandate for the hardest Brexit, which was never, mm. never mm. on the ballot. Well, so, so he says now, but the bastard never said it before. I mean, before he'd always gone about, oh, yeah, how yeah. wonderful Norway was. You know, yes. these guys love talking about Norway. And oh, look how successful and rich they are. And oh, they have oil. Hello. <laughs> yes. A lot to do with that. Quite to do on with reflection, that there, there were some lies in the referendum campaign. It's funny, isn't it? I don't feel like those guys some, are completely some. people. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I think, I think what's really made the situation so great for comedians is that right on the back of this referendum where everyone's running around with their hair on fire and you have one lady standing there saying, it's very stable, we're strong and stable, and now she's running on with her hair on fire. <laughs> and everyone is like, what is going on? And that's what's happened. I mean, can this election... Oh, my God, could it have come at a worse time? No, no. I mean, it's insane to me. You know, and yesterday I was, they said, you know, will you come on to Channel 4 and have a brief word uh, with Jon Snow? I'm not, I didn't do it. Because the fact of the matter is when I got the email, I was having a nap. And so by the time I replied, they'd already asked two other comics. <laughs> That's exactly the fact. Cruel world. <laughs> but there you go. Um, but, you know, it's very, very warm weather. And Indian meets really warm weather. We have a nap. That's what we do. Uh, sorry. Okay. So moving on. They said, you know, what? As an Indian-born and raised comic, what is the view of our of what's going on? It's like, oh my God, these people just keep on going. The referendum, then the general election. Thank God it's a democracy, because this level of chaos in a non-democratic setup, that's it. That would be it. it, it there, it's like, what is going on? Okay, fine. You know what? You you want to keep doing that? Does it make it harder to do political comedy when they are just so? Patently hilarious on their own terms. Yeah, it's a bit like no one can do comedy on Trump. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah, really. You just can't. There's nothing there. He's like a satire of himself. Either that or you just don't have the will to laugh. You're like, <laughs> you're, you're weeping. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing all the jokes. You're doing all the crying. But this election campaign was quite a good, it was quite a good comedic setup. Oh, yeah. Was, it, was, it was like one of those videos on YouTube where you see someone doing some incredible, they're like busting some incredible skateboard move and then they like smash into a tree. <laughs> exactly. And the skateboard exactly. flies into the air and then smacks them on the arse. Absolutely. And then they fall into a puddle. Yeah, and they keep... Yeah, no, no, I mean, I tell you, I tell you, we, the, the, we have a saying in India, when you sit on a branch, try not to saw it off. <laughs> I mean, Theresa May had a great branch and she just, from the moment she got it, she was like... <laughs> and we were like, oh, great. Theresa May's uh, attitude now seems to be it's only a flesh wound, don't, don't worry. <laughs> but we've got a grievously wounded party, government leader. Um, wh where, are they, where are they going? What are they planning to do? I don't think they have any plan at all right now, apart from to survive, I suppose. So there's the two... Uh, the thing is, the DUP is part of it. But the other part is the Scottish Conservatives. So Ruth Davidson has said quite clearly, she's got 13 MPs, she's got more than the DUP have. And she's like, well, look, I'm not having this. A, I'm not having it... She's clearly pushing for a much softer Brexit. But B, she's not having it on the fact that she, they're basically about to give a bunch of lunatic, homophobe theocrats, you know, a role in the British government. Completely intolerable. So on that side, there's, there's two parties, who's, two sort of parties within a party, essentially, the DUP and the Scottish Conservatives, who can't be put together. They're completely inimical in, in what they want and in their values. So that's obviously very tough for them. They've got to find a way out from it. So wh where have they ended up? Because what they really have then is back in the parliamentary party, another two set of people. You've got the European research group guys. I mean, basically, let's say, you know, between, let's say somewhere between 20 and 40 lunatic headbanging Brexiters. 
On the other side, you've got an awful lot of Tory Remainers who've been keeping their mouths shut for the last 12 months as all the winds of change went against them and are now increasingly bullish about what they feel they can do. All of that swelling around the Tory party. By the way, I mean, if we get a chance to talk about it later on, Labour is just as catastrophically fucked. But nevertheless, right now on the Tory front, <laughs> they are they're massively torn. And you think, well, what is their plan? God, their plan is just to try and somehow keep all of those cats from tearing each other up inside of the pillowcase. Exactly. And you've got all these little... All, all we can do is look at these straws in the wind. So, for instance, Gavin Barwell, who lost his mm. seat, a Remainer, a prominent Remainer, is now replaced the two problematic uh, chiefs of staff at Downing Street. He's in Downing Street with one ear of Theresa May, we hope. And mm. then you've got Damien Green, who is a sort of effectively deputy prime minister. He's a remainder as well, isn't he? He is now, you know, again, ha- hopefully we'll have the, uh, the, the ear of Theresa May. So if we're hoping for the, the softer end of Brexit, if that's the best we can rescue from all of this, mm. that's two sane voices in Downing Street. So that's you, something. You, you look around all of a sudden and there's remainers everywhere. Like you say, the Barwell thing is fascinating to me and the the right-wing blogs are just losing their mind at him being there because that suddenly they're basically saying look he's just installing remainers wherever he sees they go and again with Damien Green in the cabinet office basically which is still the coordination point for you know Department of International Trade and the Brexit Department and the Foreign Office and Downing Street and there you sit this died in the wall hardcore remainer you have to start asking, what on earth is going on? Is, is there a plan to this? Or is this just desperately throwing stuff out to try and protect yourself, yeah. to try and secure her position? And I think what you know would be a great uh, ideal case scenario out of this is if the DUP and the fact that, 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 that the Tories need to salvage something, the fact that the DUP is there will let Tories that are a bit more liberal put their head above the parapet. Mm. DUP is, is anathema to a number of Tories. Well, they're, they're like a real-life Handmaid's Tale think piece, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was watching well, the show the other night. Me and my wife both no, turned no, no, to each I other and went, get into that show. it's the yeah. DUP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And that's the thing is I think, I think there's an impulse for more s- liberal Tories, like the centre, to have some word. And this is what I, what I really would like. After all this mess, if we're going to get one thing out of it, can we get some liberal voices on both sides? Because, you know, labor is one thing, socialism is another thing. I thought it was really interesting. Did any of you see the article on Conservative Home by Geoffrey Dudgeon, who is Northern Ireland's number one gay rights campaigner? Mm. Um, He's also a Belfast city councillor. His piece was saying that basically, you know, there are some homophobic nutters at at one end of the DUP, but actually as a whole, they're nothing... They're not like that. There's for the Presbyterian, for instance, the, 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 it's been a, a party dominated by the Presbyterian Church, which is very, uh, very socially conservative. But actually, they're a small part. Uh, there's a lot of sort of regular Anglicans who are, are, are more amenable to things like gay rights and so on. And that, of course, younger members, as everywhere, are more liberal. So it's it's. I was really quite taken aback by this. Is it just this. the people at the, the top then? It's the way a few people at the top. So his argument is that, you know, don't let those few nasty people at the top um, sort of mislead you. There is hope for the DUP. Mm. It can be saved from its bigotry uh, in the longer term. And maybe that's that that, that could happen if, if they are sort of drawn into the fold of a greater conservative party. The old line about, you know, you've got to keep these, you, you pull these people in rather than, 
push them out and they'll we'll, we'll work on them they'll moderate their views it's i know it's a bit of a forlorn hope but you never know no, it's nice and optimistic i just can't i can't see it what's funny is you know we've just had this moment where Theresa may has really flirted for 12 months with the ukipization of the tory party because this wasn't just about brexit this was a bigger statement she was making about a retreat to 1950s britain everyone looks the same they act the same deferential all of that stuff we knew what she was trying to do she was just appalling towards anyone who th- felt like they were cosmopolitan or who felt like they were liberal, who felt like they had an international outlook, and she genuinely hated immigration. Now, that has just been comprehensively rejected. So even with Brexit going through, you think, well, look, there is still a restatement of liberalism and of modern values in this country. And yet what's the first thing that happens is suddenly the Tory party starts going towards the DUP. And what we get is Michael Fallon on Sunday morning TV having all this, these quotes thrown at him that the DUP are saying you can almost see the retoxification, the re-retoxification of the Tory party in real time happening in front of your eyes as he just has all of this filth just wash over him. Now, I don't think anything policy-wise follows from this. The DUP are not going to be able to change abortion laws in the main. I just don't believe that. Mm. But in terms of the mood, in terms of the kind of attitude the Tories are projecting towards the country, I, my suspicion is that they will be toxified rather than detoxifying the DUP. And I'm guessing that's why John Major and all these party grandees are saying, whoa, 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 no, we don't want anything exactly. to the DUP, because they realise yeah. exactly that, that they think all the work that's been done over the years, ever since the famous quote about the nasty party, to detoxify the brand is just about to go down the toilet. And what we need to do is is hold back. And, and not and not go into bed with the DUP. Not not that they go to bed with us, of course. And, and, no, no, and, <laughs> and, but, but no not only that. But, I mean, surely they realise what this does to the peace process. You know, the Westminster is supposed to be a neutral arbiter in, in in how we do things up there. It's been deadlocked for months because of Arlene Force's, you know, frankly, highly morally, ethically questionable behaviour. There's in deadlock. We had James Brokenshire, the Northern Ireland Minister, doing absolutely nothing. I mean, barely even seeming to be aware of the problem was happening, and then going over, having a chat with a few people, and coming back as if something had been accomplished when it quite clearly had not. And that was when Westminster could still lay the claim to being a neutral chairman between two sides. Now it plainly and demonstrably cannot take that role. And what that means for the future of the peace process seems to me to be actually really quite troubling when we look back on this historically. I suspect that that'll be one of the most poisonous things we can see following from Brexit, something that the Tory party should be truly and utterly ashamed of. So let's talk about Labour, because one of the the lever lines about this election was that 80% of the population voted for hard Brexit, basically saying that Labour were also for hard Brexit. And there's always been that, that even though he didn't, you know, electorally, Corbyn sort of played a blinder there and seemed to keep levers, seemed to keep Remainers. How much, how deeply do they believe, how deeply Eurosceptic are Corbyn and McDonnell? What's the tension between them and Starmer? Like, what does Labour actually stand for? And, and you said earlier that they were in a mess. Uh, is, th- is this the kind of reason? I said they were fucked. Yeah, I was going to say, he didn't quite um, use those words. He said catastrophically. Catastrophically <laughs> fucked. Yeah, yeah. Fucked. And I, I just feel that that's scientifically yeah. more accurate. I'm sorry for than... <laughs> your, uh, your analysis there. <laughs> So, okay, so I think that there's certain tribes in Labour. So on the one hand, you have the Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, hard Brexit guys. They are socialists. They they hate the state aid rules in in the EU. And so basically they say, well, we've got to leave the single market. That's what they want to do. They're not very honest about it. They've always sort of been mercurial, but that's what they want. Then on the other side of the party, the right wing of the party, you have an awful lot of MPs who agree with them. So you have your Stephen Kinnocks and your Rachel Reeves. They would call them Blairites. And they all want out of the single market as well. Lots of them have northern constituencies. They feel like they can't justify freedom of mm. movement on the doorstep. By the way, Ed Miliband, was eternal shame, I'll tell you behind closed doors, is exactly one of the people that stresses this. 
And they actually agree with the Corbyn leadership, but we're happy to see the Corbyn leadership take all the punishment from cosmopolitan, metropolitan sort of voters on it. Then in the middle, you have, I think, you know, the sane wing or the sane alleyway of the Labour Party, which is, you know, the, the Starmer guy, Starmer and Barry Gardner has been making the same point this week, which is basically... We don't think we can sell freedom movement. We want reform and freedom movement. But first of all, we're going to try and negotiate something like that in the single market. And if that doesn't work, then we might leave. Now, most people say they've got no chance of that. I think they might have some chance. It might be an emergency break for about seven years. The EU would accept that because you don't need to change any treaties in order to get an emergency break on something. It could be trying to return back to the sort of Treaty of Rome stuff of freedom of labor. You can come on condition of a job offer, but you can't just come. Which, by the way, is kind of anyway already the case. European Court of Justice case law only really gives you three months without yeah. a job and without being able to look after yourself before you've got to, you've got to go back home. So those are the three wings there. There's almost no... Over, I mean, th- th- there's never any clear message on any of this. What they do is they keep on talking about access. Corbyn always has tariff-free access to the single market, which fobs off anyone that isn't properly listening because it sounds like you still believe in the single market, like it's soft Brexit. In actual fact, it is the lowest possible bar you could set for negotiators. The Tories left that behind ages ago and we're talking about you know non-tariff barriers a much more complex way of looking at it and the Labour's position continues to be utterly utterly shameful and I think as you were sort of alluding to earlier actively vacuous in the same way that May was the idea is you don't put anything forward so that people can project whatever they want whatever they're hoping for onto you we seem to be in the age of active vacuousness in politics but how has Labour managed to pull it off and still come across as being okay on Brexit where I mean no rubric has stuck on Labour. There are three tribes, but somehow people are like, oh, Labour, yeah, they're not Brexit-y. Well, this, this, the stats for the swing show that the swing to Labour was biggest in Remain areas. So you've yeah, got so kind of why, like... There you go. So you have the These numbers. kind of Eurosceptic leadership yeah. still appealing to Remainers. You wonder how... I, I don't know how long that's sort of sustainable or whether yeah. Labour's momentum regarding everything else yes, is just yes, so yes. big that people are going to go, well, I, they're almost going to sort of... Yeah. Not think about it, but a cognitive dissonance required. And yet, I, yet another uh, dynamic here is that, um, you know, not just Jeremy Corbyn, but a lot of people in Labour are going to be looking at the opinion polls and thinking, we could be in government. We, mm. If yeah. there's another election, if Theresa May doesn't make it for the next in, in a few months time we could have another election we could win it this time yeah. we can do nationalization we can do state aid all these things and therefore um to hell with the eu we want a labor government that's you could see them thinking that way and therefore look at being prepared to accept the hardest brexit possible so that they get a Into socialist power, sure. economic program yeah. what do you think yeah yeah i think that's entirely possible i also think you know they, they found a way of not having to talk about it and they will continue to... Yeah, and get away with that. Yeah, they exactly. They have got away with it. They have got away with it. Everyone will do it for as long as they can. Theresa May is allowed to do it, so she does it. You know, admittedly, in the end, that didn't work out, but it's not because of the Brexit stuff. That was the only bit that was working for her. <laughs> what didn't work out was the entirety of the rest of her personality and her programme. And her campaign. Like, Yes, and uh, but Labour are trying to do the same thing. So what, who is really to blame? I mean, they're basically just doing what you do as a politician, avoiding yeah. you know obvious obstacles and, and dangers. Really, it comes down once again to journalists not doing their job and not asking them what the details are of the question that they're putting forward. Over and over. I mean, look, listening to John Humphrey's talk to David Davis on the Today program the other day was just appallingly awful. He didn't seem to understand anything. He didn't know that Norway was in the single market. He just he had, clearly hadn't done the basic levels of research that were required in order to interview the man who is, after all, 
the actual Brexit secretary. Now, every time that people keep on saying now the DUP, oh, the DUP are going to be against a hard border in Ireland. Nobody says as well, well, the DUP do actually support leaving the customs union. So saying you're going to leave the customs union and there will be no hard border in Ireland are two completely mutually incompatible sentences. And yet nobody raises it. I might as well say that I'm going to, you know, become an Olympic sprinter and I'm going to also saw off one of my legs. But it wouldn't make any (laughs) fucking sense. Nobody asks them any questions on it. So therefore, we don't get any proper details. And therefore, the leaders can get away with just fobbing us off with this utter nonsense and there's also going to be an element of uh, everyone will be looking at the economic figures from now on and thinking and, and possibly adjusting their positions mm. uh, for instance uh, you've got this the inflation figures not very good this week uh, wage wages are absolutely not keeping up with inflation now and it correct or not that is being blamed <coughs> on brexit and the fall of the pound if it yeah. gets to be labeled as a brexit effect a bad brexit effect then the public mood may change likewise we're seeing a collapse in applications for people from the eu to become nurses in the uk if the nhs gets worse and that is blamed on brexit the public's opinion may change so suddenly we'll well, maybe everybody in parliament will be a soft brexit well, the, the story right now is just sort of volatility that's the thing that's come out of that election is is, is sort of unpredictability and people changing their minds in lots of complicated ways and so I, I totally believe that that is possible. There are so many things that could that could change people's minds and I think that's maybe why the real hardcore brexiters are getting like even as if it were possible even angrier and even more <laughs> shut up <laughs> <laughs> um, because because they you do, if you're completely if you feel completely safe in your position then you don't need to get that no, cross you but if you're crazy. like you know Nigel Farage and you're like halfway back down the hill like things are getting a bit tense can i can i put one fly in this ointment i think all of this is true by the way and we're in a good place remain a much better place than we were in a few weeks ago and and as you say these dynamics these political dynamics especially with tense negotiations with what we presume be humiliation in brussels and lost votes back in westminster tends to suggest that things could work out well for us but what concerns me is the stuff i've actually been seeing from europe i think uh, barnier's comments have not been particularly helpful and then Verhofstadt comes out and starts saying well by the way if you try to revoke article 50 it's going to be on different terms so now you'd have to be in the eurozone and order and lose the rebate that's that's how the interpretation i think i think the sound interpretation of what he said you just think each time they do this you just think shut up you just it'd be best if you just kept your mouth absolutely yeah. quiet right now while we go through this period there is a chance that this can be reversed and yet Lots of people in Europe are increasingly pissed off with us. We've been wasting an awful lot of time. And that comes against the backdrop of years of us, you know, basically wanting everything our own way, our own bespoke little arrangements, and then still not being happy with it and doing this. And actually, it's possible that opinion there could go the way of actually pushing us out. It could be that the most significant hard Brexiters are in Brussels. But it's very dispiriting to me to see them talk this way. I noticed the Commission did not back the Hofstadt up on what he said, which is important. But there is there are signs there that they're the ones who could, who could really make this much more difficult for us. And all of that is glorious music to the ears of the UKIP guys and to right-wing columnists who are eagerly pointing people towards that and going, look, look at how they are. They want us out. They have that cooperation. This is cooperation between the right of the Tory party and the left of the Labour party and now between the more irritating yeah. figures in Brussels. This is the weird nexus of stuff that could actually stop us from advancing over the next couple of years. Okay, time for a quick commercial message about our sister podcast, Big Mouth. If you're a fan of music, film, books and TV, as well as tariffs, then Big Mouth is right (laughs) up your street. (laughs) Big Mouth is a weekly pop culture talk show where Britain's best music and entertainment journalists talk over the new releases, books and movies that really matter. 
This week, the novelist John Niven and journalist Mark Hooper are looking at the reissue of Radiohead's OK Computer, the latest cinematic incarnation of Churchill, and the first solo album by leather-lunged dance floor queen Beth Ditto. You can download Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth, or find it in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store, right next to Romaniacs. So our special guest this week is comedian Sindhu V. Now, there was a story a few months ago about Leavers uh, supposedly storming out of Marcus Brigstock's show because of Brexit material. Ah. And it just isn't funny. Have you had any uh, angry Leavers uh, well, leaving? I mean, yeah, well, there you go. Kind of soft, but there you go. Return? First of all, angry and Leaver in this context goes together. They're just, I mean, it's like you got what you wanted. Why are you still so pissed off? <laughs> Secondly, the fact that they would storm out of things. It's like, oh, they're just doing what they do. That's, that's their whole POA. Um, I don't do a, I mean, the one joke I have is about telling someone to fuck off because they're not from here. So the leavers love it. They're like, ha ha, yes, this is the point. Uh, so they don't, so, you know, they, don't, they don't leave my shows, really. Um, and I don't do a lot more material than that. But I think the whole, one of the things about politics that's always fascinated me is that, you know, you get these images attached to people and that's how satire works. There's these sort of caricatured images. And the image of a lever is some angry person who doesn't like anyone else who's not like them. But anger is a big part of it. Whereas Remainers are these wonderful people who like everyone and, oh, we can all be together and it's multicultural. <laughs> so nice, you know? It's just the image you have in your head. And I think you can be a less angry lever, but we don't believe you exist. You're like a unicorn. You know what I mean? So, And I, that's just one of the things about th- this whole situation right now is that where I was talking to some comics the other day in the green room and they were saying that you just have to say one thing because one of them said, well, I've been reading a lot of science about climate change. I'm not sure it's what it's made out to be. And literally everyone was like, oh my God, you're a right-wing fascist. Hmm. And they were like, no. And I think that's the thing with being a lever. You know, if you tell me you're a lever, I'm like, yeah, and you're angry. Well, wasn't, who, was, who was it? Was it Lee Hurst? Was it Lee Hurst? Oh, I got that wrong. No, okay. Uh, was it Lee Hurst uh, who, who was very... It was very Brexity and ended up getting lots of very unfunny rows on Twitter. Yeah. And it and it just it, it gave him a very strange impression. I mean, someone can be funny regardless of where on the spectrum they are. But yeah, he see, it seemed to have removed all the humor from well, him. Well also and I and I for those comics who are uh who are not left, it's very hard for people to listen to your comedy and not want to take you down. And I've seen this. Comedy tends to be a very lefty world, which is fine. It's the arts. And I get that and I understand that. But for a point of view, if you have an aspirational or not necessarily Brexity, but if you have a, you know, if you have commentary to make, the comedy is sort of disallowed. People don't want to hear about it. And that must make you angry as a comic because you're like, wait, there's a joke. Listen, there's a joke. And, you know, like I'll tell you if my husband doesn't listen to me enough, I get angry. Oh, shit, he'll tell you. <laughs> you know? So I think it happens. I think there's a kind of a shutting down. I'm not saying that... I mean, he maybe have been saying angry things, but there's a kind of shutting down of the... the you're not allowed to make jokes about that if you're on that side of the spectrum. And I think if... I'm not a Brexity person, but if you're a Brexity comic, I can see why you wouldn't get much airtime, and that would piss you off. You uh, know what I mean? A comedy audiences as left-wing as comedians seem to be? Uh, it depends what the room is. Totally mm. depends what the room is. You know what I mean? It Literally, you can get all kinds of audiences. Uh, so but that's interesting. So it's basically just the people on stage are usually of, of a particular type, but the people in the audience are more diverse in their sort of... Well, I mean, I don't think you get to... Yeah, exactly right. And I, and I mean, I don't think all comics come on and say, oh, here's my political credentials, but I'm talking in green rooms and so on and yeah. so forth. And also, I have never heard a comic get out and say, I love Brexit. 
I've never heard that. I'm the only one I've heard say, oh, there's a silver lining. And then, of course, it's the small thing I say to my husband, mm. but actually I'm a remainer. Do you know what I mean? I've mm. never heard that. And I mean, it'd be interesting. But if someone got out and said, I'm a, I'm a Brexit, uh, you know, I, I love Brexit as a comic, you know, everyone in the room would say, think you're probably misogynist and racist and this and that. And that'd be that. Roy Shelby Brown's probably quite Brexit, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> OK, so let's step out of the whirling spin dryer that is the post-election period in Britain for a moment and talk about uh, EU regulations. Now, don't all switch off because it's really great fun. Uh, you might have received a text or an email in the past week uh, from your uh, mobile provider to tell you that from now on, for actually from this week, there will be no more roaming charges when you visit another EU country. And that will be true for calls, text, data. It's a great great idea because you know remember how big a rip-off it used to be oh going God. going to france or spain or whatever with your mobile phone so basically you've got brexiteers huffing and puffing about how terrible these eu regulations are people still quoting the long abandoned and never enforced rule about the bendiness of bananas but actually oh. if we'd had a proper debate about the EU's most important regulations and directives and so on, we'd find that most of them are not only sensible, but popular. Let's just go through a few examples. BA's computer meltdown the other mm. other week. Well, presumably all of those Brexiteers who got stuck up in, in, in Heathrow Airport will be saying, no, no, we don't want all of that generous compensation that the EU regulations mm. give us because, you know, we don't believe in EU regulation. It's bad. Well, let's see if that happens. There's all these data protection laws that are coming in, in the next year that means that your data will belong to you and not to some faceless, sinister corporation in Silicon Valley. There's the right. There's a general right to... F- right to be forgotten initiative which means that you know if you want to tell facebook or whoever delete all of this all the information you've collected on me they will have to delete it there's um all those things to do with pollution from from cars and so on i know some of the car makers have been fiddling uh, these rules but generally look at what's happened with those they've made they've forced the car makers to make cars an awful lot more efficient uh both in spewing out pollution and also therefore on consumption of petrol so as motorists and as creatures who breathe air we've we've gained enormously and and, and you know the, the the car makers have managed to keep the price of cars down while doing all this, because there was sensible regulation that made them do it, albeit with a few fiddles to the side. My personal favourite is Directive 93-13-EEC. If that sounds boring, you should all <laughs> write this down and carry it around with you because what it means is... For parties. For parties. Whenever you go in a shop, whenever you sign up a mobile contract or anything, especially if you're dealing with um, double glazing salesmen or people like that, they'll give you all sorts of small print. What you need to know is that you can merrily sign that contract and all the small print is essentially invalid. What this directive says, and it's now been introduced into the law of all the EU member countries, and including for the time being Britain, is that the courts are required to rip up the small print and say, what would be fair in this case? What would a consumer seriously, reasonably have agreed to? So all these penalty charges and things that infringe your right to, to return the item if it's faulty, you can't, you can't do all that anymore. These are all great regulations, and the EU has... And quite a lot of cases... Britain was not only in support of them, but Britain actually proposed a fair number of them. And so, you know, the, 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 this is one to me one of the big failings of the Remain campaign that we didn't actually, you know, we just sort of let Boris Johnson and Co keep peddling these myths, and we didn't say actually a lot of these regulations are ones that we wanted and that they're very popular. Why? What? You know, that's a good thing about the EU. They didn't really make the case, did they? Well, I think 
Yes, no, but the thing that bothers me about that last one, that nine three slash whatever, whatever, which I, which I will can't definitely, you've write, that. I know I can't believe it either, <laughs> is that it just seems like as a parent, I never want my kids to know that that regulation exists. It's it's about how I feel, mommy. It's about how I feel, <laughs> not what the rule was. I never want my kids. I'm gonna be like, if there's a class on uh, Brexit, don't go. Um, so anyway, that's one thing. But the other thing is, I think the reason they didn't explain it is because both the referendum and this election have this underlying hubris. The Remainers were like, that's never gonna happen. Mm. So they didn't bother explaining. She, May, was like, I'm, I totally got this. Oh yeah, really? The hubris both these times has stopped a lot of good information from getting out, you know, and maybe have helped. I mean, if she'd been marginally less robotic and said some third word besides, or fourth word besides strong and stable, strong and stable, strong and stable, she might have, you know, not been in this pickle. Like, likewise in the Cameron and, and co in the, uh, in the remain- referendum. The, they, they tried the a little Remainer bit harder. The thing was, ju- mm. I mean, the referendum, they were like, this is never going to happen. Everyone thought that a bit like with Trump when we all went to sleep, so, ah, Clinton's got this, woke up and... I think my my fondness for for this kind of regulation special is, is that you know the kind of the the exciting visceral side of politics is all about kind of its culture you know it's culture yeah. wars it's the national mood it's wanting drastic change you know it's the gladiator I mean I'm not sure you could really call Corbyn versus May gladiatorial but you know who's yeah. your favorite gladiator <laughs> roughly <laughs> there's only one way to find right out That's right <laughs> um, but you know a lot of the important work is being done in these kind of boring rooms where they're kind of thrashing out stuff which actually makes a big difference to people, sometimes in small ways, but, you know, important ways. And that this is the kind of stuff that, that really matters and it, it is the large part of the business of politics or the business is of policymaking. Is the admin. Is the admin, and yet rem- the Remain campaign, and, and let's face it, the media, it's it's such a hard thing to sell. It's a hard thing to get people excited about. If you if you name any one of these, it's like, eh, yeah, I could live without you that. Imagine? You pile them up, yeah, and then suddenly, I mean, you couldn't do that speech at Wembley. Like, you know what I mean? People would. There's no kind of applause lines there, but it it really matters. We have to say a couple of other things as well. There, I mean, we have to say, but Brussels is terrible at making its case. Now, if you look at the look at the Brussels press corps, I mean, those guys haven't spoken to anyone in years. Nobody cares what they put out there, and it's very dry, you know, sort of policy oriented. And, and politics, the way to communicate this stuff is to have some color in your coverage as well. Politics is about personalities and policy at the same time. It'd be nice to find a middle ground between the kind of thing that we're talking about now and the more sort yeah. of Boris Johnson, he's straight bananas. Sort of I mean, the, the, there is a way of doing that, and and actually that reflects the way that things really work. The other part is, and this is a danger for all of Europe, is really that you're having policymaking taking place at a level above where the press are. In each country, the press deal with what the country is up to. And so that's why you get lots of coverage of the parliaments there. But actually, when this stuff happens at a continental level, there are no European newspapers, you know, that are covering it as a continent. So what you get, because all of the political debate is stuck at the sort of national level and lots of the policymaking is happening above it, is you get politicians that know how to use it. So they get to go along and say, well, fine, anything good, we did. Anything bad, they did. And that way you see the dynamic that eventually leads you to where Brexit is. And that's mostly to do with the way that the EU is organised and the way that national countries are organised, both in their political structure and in their media. OK, well, due to the EU Working Time Directive, we have to stop working on the show now. <laughs> <laughs> so that means it's time for a reason to be cheerful. 
Peter, what have you got for us? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that Arlene Foster of the DUP may have 10 votes in Parliament, but Ruth Davidson of the Scottish Conservatives, socially liberal, (laughs) in favour of a soft Brexit, has 13 votes. Lucky 13. That's fantastic. She, she really has become the kind of uh, the Tory that, that everyone can like. Yes, it? exactly. I, I have to com- confess that when there was that brief talk of her leading a breakaway of the Scottish Conservatives, I went to the Scottish Conservative website and looked up whether you actually have to be Scottish to join. <laughs> uh, you don't, apparently. So if she breaks away, she'll be getting 20 quid from me. Oh, that's good. No, but she is. She's likeable. I had a friend ask me the other day. She was like, um, so is there a, someone that you really have like a lot of faith in in British politics who you'd want to lead like a new centrist party? She doesn't really follow politics too closely but she has the right values and i was like yeah i guess uh ruth davidson she's like who's that i'm like it's the scottish tory leader she's like sorry the scottish what leader <laughs> like, there were the, the scottish tory leader she was like there's a moment break she was like okay do, do you have anyone else <laughs> but nevertheless she like is it. actually our great hope i want centrists yeah. but not tory centrists <laughs> exactly <laughs> like left-wing centrists yes. exactly <laughs> So that's the end of this week's show. Thanks for listening and thanks to Cindy V, our special guest. Thank you for having me. This has been most instructive. I'm, and the, my big takeaway is that, uh, that, that 93 slash... 93 slash 13 yeah. slash EEC. Memorise it. I'm <laughs> that's going to be like a big icebreaker. And he's not even joking about memorising it. You'd have to. Cindy's in Iguana Mum in Edinburgh throughout August and you can find her comedy dates at sinduv.com. That's Cindy with an H. Remember, you can follow Romaniacs on Twitter at RomaniacsCast. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes to search for Romaniacs in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. And of course, we'd be glad of a positive star rating. It all helps to get us noticed. And you can listen again and download at audioboom slash channel slash Romaniacs. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Arrivederci and adieu. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunt and Peter Collins. It's produced by Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 